You're tuned to RTE Radio 1, where it's time now for Arts Tonight with Vincent Woods. On this edition of the programme, the story of a musical genius and the city that brought his masterpiece to life, Dublin, Messiah and Handel. In November 1741, George Friedrich Handel, one of the world's greatest composers, arrived in Dublin, the second city of the British Empire, to give a series of charitable concerts and to prepare his masterpiece, Messiah, for its first performance the following spring. A new book, Hallelujah, by historian Jonathan Barden, provides an expansive view of a city in flux, at once struggling to contain the chaos unleashed by the catastrophic famine of the preceding year while striving to become a vibrant centre of European culture and commerce. It's no surprise that over the years Handel's Messiah has inspired other artistic projects. John Banville wrote his play 1742 for the Ark in Dublin, whose title refers to the year of Messiah's first performance. And Fishamble Theatre also has its associations with Handel, as Jim Culleton, the company's artistic director, explains. In Fishamble, we've always had a, a lovely, strange connection to Fishamble Street because as well as Fishamble Street being the place where, of course, Handel's Messiah was first performed, it was also the first playhouse ever to commission Irish writers to write plays. Other theatres were bringing playwrights in from London, uh, but in Fishamble Street, they decided to commission Irish writers to write plays and because that's what we now do at Fishamble, we're called in honour of that. I suppose another lovely connection happened when we were approached a few years back by Lyric FM to co-produce a play inspired by Handel's Messiah and we commissioned Joe O'Connor to write Handel's Crossing and then a few years after that we performed the play live as part of the Dublin Handel Festival uh, and the audience actually came up the Liffey on a boat listening to Handel's water music and then boarded the Jeannie Johnston ship and the play took place on that. The play is, I suppose, an exploration of Handel, who was going through a very difficult time. He was down on his luck, as we know, and he was uh, coming to Dublin to perform some some works and not knowing what was ahead of him and how it would be perceived. And I suppose we have the the, the benefit now, uh, with hindsight, of knowing that Messiah in particular was such a a huge success and still is, uh, and it's it's something that people uh, feel so endeared towards, I suppose, even now. Uh, But the play really looked at an uncertainty um, during his life and a time of worry and fear because he, he wasn't sure how things, would, how things would go. And it actually, the play itself that Joe has written, Handel's Crossing, centres on two of his servants, Peter and Marjorie. And Marjorie is a woman from Galway who's pregnant and very uncertain of her future and of the future for her child. And I suppose the story of those two characters expecting a baby and looking forward to the birth of a baby but with lots of fear and trepidation parallels really beautifully the story of Messiah itself. Jim Culleton, Artistic Director of Fishamble Theatre Company, on the play Handel's Crossing by Joseph O'Connor. Before getting down to discussing his book Hallelujah, the story of a musical genius and the city that brought his masterpiece to life, Jonathan Barden read an extract relating to Handel's journey to Dublin. Handel set off for Ireland at the beginning of November 1741. He took with him his copyist and financial secretary, John Christopher Smith, born Schmidt, who was from Ansbach and had been at the University of Halle with Handel. The composer was already on his way when Jennings came to London only to find that Handel was not there. I quote from him. I heard with great pleasure at my arrival in town that Handel had set the oratorio of Messiah. 
but it was with some mortification to me to hear that instead of performing it here, he was gone into Ireland with it. Handel had the choice of two ports, with the regular cross-channel service to Dublin. The shortest passage was from Hollyhead on the Isle of Anglesey, but that would entail an additional 60-mile travel along the wretchedly bad roads of North Wales. For centuries, Chester had been the principal port for Ireland and had been chosen by William of Orange as the point of embarkation for his great army as he set out to confront the deposed James II in June 1690. Now the port of Chester was silting up and soon would become unsuitable for ships of any size. Cross-channel vessels had already moved downstream of the city to Parkgate, a village on the banks of the Dee, where Handel arranged his passage. It was as he passed through Chester that Charles Burney saw the composer for the first time. I'm quoting him now. I was at the public school in that city and very well remember seeing him smoke a pipe over a dish of coffee at the Exchange Coffee House. For being extremely curious to see so extraordinary a man, I watched him narrowly as long as he remained in Chester, which on account of the wind being unfavourable for his embarking at Parkgate was several days. During this time he applied to Mr Baker, the organist, my first music master, to know whether there were any choirmen in the cathedral who could sing at sight, as he wished to prove some books that had been hastily transcribed by trying the choruses which he intended to perform in Ireland. Mr Baker mentioned some of the most likely singers then in Chester, and amongst the rest a printer of the name of Johnson, who had a good bass voice and was one of the best musicians in the choir. Though he was not there in person, Bernie was told what happened next in a local tavern. I quote, A time was fixed for this private rehearsal at the Golden Falcon, where Handel was quartered. But alas, on trial of the chorus in the Messiah, and with his stripes we are healed, poor Johnson, after repeated attempts, failed so egregiously that Handel let loose his great bear upon him, and after swearing in four languages, cried out in broken English, You scoundrel! Did you not tell me that you could sing at sight? Yes, sir, says the printer, and so I can, but not at first sight. Adverse winds prevented any passenger vessel sailing from Parkgate from the 5th of November until the 17th of the month. On the 18th of November, Handel eventually stepped ashore in Ireland. Handel's arrival in Dublin there from Hallelujah by Jonathan Barden. Jonathan Barden, what drew you to Handel and his great messiah as subjects for a book. My father was a teller in the Munster and Leinster Bank in Donnybrook and uh, he didn't know anything much about classical music uh, but there was a customer he greatly respected and uh, he would advise my father on what LPs to buy. He had just bought an LP player and attached it with some difficulty to the radio. So one day he came home on his bicycle at tea time uh, smiling and pulled out of a brown paper bag three LPs, and this was Handel's Messiah. And since uh, he only bought about two or three LPs a year, I would play these vinyl discs repeatedly and got to know Messiah extremely well, though I didn't know a crotchet from a quaver at the time. Did you somehow almost love that music from early hearing? I, I enjoyed it enormously. And on more than one occasion, my mother caught me conducting the record player. And then when I was a student uh, um, at Trinity College, uh, I would often walk along the quays, looking at second-hand bookshops and that kind of thing, walk up Fishamble Street and say, um, didn't Messiah get its first performance here? And there was nothing to indicate that. 
there was no music hall left. Uh, there, uh, there is, of course, a plaque there now. And uh, then, much later on in 1984, I wrote uh, a book on Wood Quay, which uh, is right beside Fishamble Street. And naturally, I had to include a description of the first performance of Messiah there. And that intrigued me. I wanted to know more myself. And, and we'll talk about maybe how that book and other books you'd written fed into this book and, and, and the shape and texture of it. But I think about that, you know, your role as an historian. And, and you've said in the past that the historian has a duty to tell well. Which I think is a, is a lovely, plain and direct way of putting it. Um, how did you set about telling this story well and thoroughly? I started my career as a teacher in a, a tough school in East Belfast. And if you didn't speak directly and enticingly, uh, you wouldn't hold uh, the attention of people. And uh, I always felt that you should write that way as well as teach that way. Communication is a, a, extremely important and uh, perhaps some historians don't pay enough attention to that. And I suppose... Communication isn't always about detail, is it? And yet you manage to bring in a huge amount of detail but make it accessible and alive. I mean, is that something you're really conscious of trying to do, of making this world, this time, come to, to colour and life off the page? I want to bring the past to life by painting word pictures. And uh, uh, the best way to do that is to, to provide illustrative detail so that people can picture in their minds what it was like, not merely to get broad explanations uh, why things happened, though that's important also. The book, Hallelujah, has, has an intriguing structure. And I suppose that this links to what you're saying, you know, one that in a sense unfurls rich details of history. Each chapter clearly divided into smaller sections with their own subtitles. For you, is that almost an effective way of ordering your own thoughts or whetting the reader's appetite or, or both? I, I think it's ordering my own thoughts for a start. I, as I was actually writing the book, there were quite uh, large chunks uh, that uh, I felt I need to go out and find out more about this person or what happened here. Um, uh, what I wanted to do is to bring two things together. Uh, what was Dublin like in the early 18th century and uh, the, the actual story of why Handel came over to Ireland, uh, why he decided to give Messiah its, its premiere in Dublin and uh, why some of his singers also decided to come to Dublin, not necessarily be because it was their own first choice. It's a complex picture and, and a fascinating one. You mentioned the book on, on Wood Quay, Dublin 1000 Years of, of Wood Quay. How did that book and others, you know, like A History of Ulster, feed into and influence this book? I've always wanted to survey the whole history of the island. I mean, for example, when I was writing the history of Ulster, you just don't need to know about what's happening in Ulster. You need to know what's happening in Dublin, the rest of the country. And of course, that was uh, emphasised still further when I did uh, a radio series which became a history of Ireland in 250 episodes. It is for everybody. It describes the whole island. And of course, uh, as you say, the history of this island linked inextricably to our, our great neighbour. Uh, and uh, that's a fascinating part of, of this book as well. And I was really struck by the different responses to Messiah in Dublin and in England then. Yes, Handel uh, had a very successful couple of decades writing Italian operas, bringing over castrati and Italian divas. 
But by uh, the late 1730s, fashionable society in London was tiring of this. Uh, so Handel decided to try some of his sacred oratorios and he set some parts, stories from the Old Testament uh, to music. But the uh, gentry of London weren't keen on that. They felt it was all far too static. They wanted more excitement. And Handel was beginning to lose money because he was actually a promoter as well as a composer. So when he gets this invitation from this little charity in Dublin, would he ever like to come over and um, do a charity, a benefit? concert, uh, compositions of his own choosing, he decided, yes, I'm going to try. Uh, and, and the thing is, he knew something about Dublin, even though he'd never been there. His neighbour, uh, Mary Pendarve, uh, who later became Mary Delaney because she married an Irishman, uh, she was the, the, the niece of Lord Lansdowne, one of the most powerful people in Western Europe. And um, she came over to Dublin was coming for six months and stayed for a year and a half and she came back and rhapsodised about the city to him. Plus, the master of the state music, Matthew Dubourg, he uh, had first met Handel when he was just a little boy. He stood on a stool and did a solo in Britain, Mr Britain's Warehouse and Handel employed him many times. So Dubourg was backwards and forwards between Dublin and London, would call in on Handel and say, you know, you should come to Dublin. You've got choristers from Christchurch Cathedral and St Patrick's Cathedral. I'm master of the state music. It's really quite a good little band. There are lots of enthusiastic members of the upper classes who come in every winter from the countryside, from their great estates. They need entertainment and they'll pay for it. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, you're not a musicologist. Um, how did you go about cracking I suppose what must be the complex musical end of, of Messiah and its development. How did you ensure that you were on the, on the right path? Well, I, I knew where to go for the history. A, a lot of what has been written uh, on Handel and music is very specialist stuff. It's for musicians. And I, I found reading that uh, those books extraordinarily interesting and, and helpful. Uh, I mean, for example, there's a, a New York critic called Ben Finane who wrote about Messiah and, his, uh, and Handel's oratorios. And his descriptions assisted me greatly I always wanted to use language that could be understood not only by me, but by people who didn't know anything about music. And then, fortunately, I had a, a composer friend that I could get to see had I made any terrible mistakes. So he was able to vet that for me. <laughs> a useful thing to have in writing such a book. Um, historically, you know, the, the years around the first performance of Messiah... Very, very interesting in, in terms of Irish life and history and reading the broader history of in and around the book. I think your examination of, of Dublin in, in the context of the British Empire and the predominantly Protestant elite of the Pale and the, then the primal role of weather in people trying to avoid starvation and famine and not always succeeding. Talk to me about those themes and, and the great hunger that had predated this first performance. Yes, for much of the 17th century, the soil of Ireland had been drenched in blood with rebellions and repressions going on and uh, the century ended and the 18th century began with uh, dispossession, the imposition of penal laws against Catholics and uh, dissenters. But that actually introduced the longest peace that Ireland has enjoyed in modern times. But, of course, you have a very unequal society Catholics uh, only possessed 14% of the land at the beginning of the 18th century and that kept dropping to 5% by the end of the 18th century. So 
This allowed the population to increase very slowly, but they became very, very dependent on just a few crops and on their cattle, and they were extremely weather-dependent. There were several crises in the 1720s, for example. In 1740, appalling weather conditions settled on the whole of uh, Northern Europe and Western Europe. Basically, Arctic conditions came in. Uh, The year 1740 began with the Great Frost Uh, which destroyed many of the potatoes in clamps in the ground, then followed by long drought, so the grass didn't grow and the cattle starved. In the autumn, there were the most terrible storms, uh, the Liffey and the Boyne overflowing, and then the terrible cold weather settles in again at the end of 1740, beginning of 1741. This produced a terrible famine, which the Irish called Blian on our year of the slaughter. Uh, a higher proportion of people died in that one year of 1741 than died in the four or five years of famine in the 1840s. The, the reason for this is that the government actually did nothing. You had in England a system of parish poor relief. The Scots had a voluntary one which worked just as well. Even the King of Prussia, who was at war, had a much better system of poor relief than even existed in places like France. So the death rate was terrible. So Dublin was filled with thousands of destitute beggars, uh, starving people, bringing disease with them as well. Uh, The prisons of Dublin filled up with those who had been arrested, for example, for not paying their debts or for uh, stealing food. And it was to help these people that the Charitable Musical Society for uh, the release of imprisoned debtors wrote to Handel, inviting him over. Extraordinary linking. Uh, of of historical events and these socioeconomic realities that help to foster this extraordinary work of music and and art that has come down in time to us. And it was the very inequality and conquest of Ireland uh, that actually made Dublin a great city because uh, huge swathes of Ireland had been given over to the New English and to the Scottish planters and um, they uh, were beginning to build uh, very nice uh, Palladian mansions on their estates. But in winter... They wanted to come into Dublin, partly to marry off their daughters for a bit of uh, social life. And uh, so they rented or bought places in, for example, Henrietta Street or St. Stephen's Green. And naturally, they wanted to be entertained. Also, the Viceroy felt it uh, was his duty to make sure that there were entertainments to keep the upper classes happy. And reading the book, I was amazed at how much entertainment there was, at at how rich that scene was and and how diverse. I mean, it it was a really thriving centre of music in particular. It's a thriving centre of music. Uh, There were two theatres, one at Smock Alley and another in Anger Street. Uh, But you didn't just put on plays there, even plays in between acts of Shakespearean plays, uh, there would be music that the musicians were almost run ragged, uh, particularly during the winter, uh, rushing from one venue to another. Uh, Plus the fact that the established church, the Church of Ireland, felt it was absolutely important that anthems should be composed and sung, that that even song and uh, morning service should be well sung to as well. In the bibliography, you you list many key texts about this period in Dublin, books which must have been very useful for you in creating 
an atmosphere for your book, uh, Maurice Craig's, for example. I'm a Belfast uh, inhabitant, but I'm from Dublin. Maurice Craig was the other way around. He was a Belfast man who'd lived most of his life in Dublin. And uh, his was one of the first books I read on uh, Georgian Dublin many years ago. So he, he started me off. Uh, there's been enormous interest in, in Georgian buildings, quite a lot of specialist stuff as well. And of course, David Dixon, who has written this magnificent history of Dublin, he also wrote a short little book uh, called Arctic Ireland. And that was terribly helpful to me for my first chapter. And there's another book, Dublin Through Space and Time, uh, Joseph Brady and Angrid Sims. Yes, these people have been um, uh, in- investigating and describing Dublin for, for many years. It was great as well to read the various notices from the newspapers and fascinating, again, the diversity of that you know, the, and the unexpected range of things at times. Obviously, newspapers were key to so much of, of what was going on, how people knew what was going on and advertising, for instance, the, the charitable institutions be backing something like uh, that, that first performance of Messiah. Yes, there, there were three or four newspapers in Dublin, which is really very impressive. Newspapers in those days uh, were not made from newsprint, in other words, from trees. They were made from rags. And the paper itself was the most expensive bit of the, uh, of the newspaper. And that's why the print is absolutely tiny. The advertisement, arguably the most famous music advert in history, uh, in Faulkner's Dublin Journal, inviting people to come to Messiah, it's tiny. In other words, you need to be going through the newspaper, probably with the magnifying glass in your hand, to find out what's going on, what's available. But they did assiduously. Um, the business of music is something else you look at in, in some detail. And again, it seems to have been a, a very active scene in Dublin at the time. There'd been the printing of music, the making of instruments, the provision of artists and the managing of venues. And it, it's part of it. It was a big business scene. It's a big business. And what is amazing is that the music business was confined to, uh, much of it was confined to Christchurch Yard, uh, which is now just the, the approaches uh, j- just beside Christchurch. Uh, there were music shops and places where you could buy not only printed music, but also all kinds of instruments, some of them imported from Germany and Britain, as well as the forecourts. <laughs> all of the forecourts were there. There was a, a music venue at Crow Street, but Fishamble Street Music Hall was actually the biggest one in Ireland when it was completed in 1741, uh, capable of uh, seating around about 700 people. And there's a lovely detail in in the book as well, (laughs) the invitation uh, to ladies to not wear their hoops and and gentlemen uh, to leave their swords at home, so to make room for more. Yes, I I mean, you, you could probably... Uh, increase the audience by at least one third by getting the ladies to leave the hoops out of their skirts. Uh, And swords also took up a bit of space. And uh, so the advertisement said that this was necessary to increase the charity. But what is very interesting is that the ladies didn't always comply. There were further performances of Messiah after Handel went back to London. And you see adverts in Faulkner's Dublin Journal, almost frantic ones, with the ladies please leave the hoops out of their skirts and not be a la mode and all this. Fantastic. Mm. Um, and Malise as well, with uh, crowds coming in uh, to the various venues, uh, as was the various modes of transports meeting and, <laughs> and causing some chaos, shall we say. 
I, I mean, I was driving in the area this afternoon and you could see the bumper to bumper uh, difficulty of traffic there. But the streets were even narrower in those days. Plus, many of the houses actually jutting out over the street. Uh, so much of the business of the city was actually carried on around Fishamble Street, around Christchurch. The Tholsal was really, the in Skinner's Row, was uh, really the civic centre. They had to introduce a one-way system for sedan chairs. Uh, the gentry generally came in sedan chairs so they wouldn't get their skirts and, and their feet dirty. So uh, because Handel's performances were so popular, the newspapers had to have advertisements saying that uh, you're not allowed to have your servants hanging about with their sedan chairs blocking the streets, they must move on. And uh, hazard chairs, which sort of the equivalent of taxis you hail, they're OK, they're allowed, and you have to have a one-way system. This one-way system was actually introduced by two ladies who hired the music hall on Saturday afternoons. Innovators. Innovators, in yes. I had always assumed Handel himself wrote the libretto for Messiah, and that's one of the... Many things I learned from this book, uh, that in fact, the libretto was written by Charles Jennings. Uh, tell me about him and his background. How, and how did he come to do this remarkable work that, that spurred the extraordinary music? Charles Jennings has been in the shadow for quite some time. And this is partly his own fault because he didn't even sign the libretto or word book to Messiah. He was a very wealthy, uh, rather lonely country gentleman who was deeply religious and he disapproved strongly of um, Presbyterians and Methodists and people like that, and also Catholics. He was very much a high churchman. And what really appalled him was the fact that more and more members of the upper classes were becoming deists. In other words, they believed in God, but not in the Trinity. They were becoming sceptics, or as an Irish bishop, Bishop Barclay called them, free thinkers. Now, lots and lots of books were written uh, pamphlets were written to denounce all of this. But Jennings, he decided the way to win people back from their unbiblical ways was to write oratorios and, and perform them uh, on the stage where sceptics and deists were likely to be meeting. So uh, for him, Messiah was a kind of almost propaganda to try and bring people back uh, to traditional Christian beliefs. But he applied himself with, with great rigour and determination to, to the task of, of making these words compact and at the same time giving them the, the potential to soar as they do and carry a breath as they do. Yes, Jennings uh, had already proved himself to handle. Uh, he had written quite a few librettos for him on all kinds of things. Saul was perhaps the main oratorio he had written for him. And so Handel knew he, he knew about music. He was a, a very good uh, harpsichord player himself. Uh, he collected enormous quantities of music from Italy. So Handel knew this is the man who can apply words to music. But the interesting thing is that usually Jennings and uh, Handel would have a chat about it and they say, well, now, I don't think that piece of music would be suitable. For example, Jennings said to Handel, you can't have a hallelujah in Saul. So Handel was determined to have one in Messiah. But the, the scripture collection, as Jennings called it, was simply popped through Handel's letterbox in Brook Street in London. And... Um, uh, Jennings may have waited for as long as 18 months before Handel decided to do anything with it. And I think it was the invitation from the Charitable Musical Society in Dublin that uh, encouraged Handel to put his mind to putting Jennings' uh, words to music. Now, Jennings 
being a very good musician, he altered the words slightly without altering the meaning to make them more poetic. This was not something that was disapproved of. Uh, I mean, in most of the anthems written for the Church of England in the 18th century, it was allowable to do this. But Jennings does it superbly. Do we know what Jennings made then of, of Handel's music uh, for his libretto? Uh, Jennings was a very, very critical, uh, disagreeable sort of man in many ways, easily upset. For a start, he objected to uh, the symphony or the overture which begins Messiah. Uh, and he tried again and again to, to get Handel to, to drop it. Um, there were bits uh, where he complained that Handel had not applied his genius to it well enough. And he actually did persuade Handel to make some minor alterations. But uh, Handel had a very difficult time resisting these complaints from his librettist. You include the Messiah wordbook as your first appendix in your book. What was the importance of the songbook in ensuring the popular appeal of Messiah? For a start, ev almost everybody who went to a performance of Messiah bought a wordbook. It cost you half a guinea to get in to Messiah and sixpence, a British sixpence, to, to buy a wordbook. And um, it must be remembered that the audience knew their Bible extremely well. It was quite unnecessary for Jennings to have, or Handel to have, tedious recitative, uh, which, which you get in so many uh, Italian operas in, in the 18th century. Even the sceptics and deists, they, they knew their Bible as well. And, uh, of course, the enormously moving music that, that Handel produced for, you know, areas like I know that my Redeemer liveth, you know, this moved people enormously. Jonathan Swift uh, then played a, a particular role in, in the first public performance of Messiah. Uh, some myths about that role. Um, tell me the facts as you read them and what was Swift's part in all of this? Swift uh, was uh, brought up very near to Fishamble Street. Uh, he uh, then made his career in England as a Tory propagandist. He was a, a, an Anglican clergyman, a Church of Ireland clergyman. But uh, he supported the wrong party. And when Queen Anne died, the Whigs came to power. He hoped to be a bishop in England. So when he was offered the post of Dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral, he took it. Now, it ought to be remembered that actually he was a very conscientious Dean of St. Patrick's for most of his career. He arrives in 1714, 1715. And he spent many years improving the choir. Uh, he had a lot of choristers who, these were adult men who were employed to sing in the choir, who uh, drank too much and didn't turn up for rehearsals. And by the time that Handel came to Dublin, the St. Patrick's Cathedral Choir was as good as the Christchurch Cathedral Choir. But by that time, Handel, uh, basically, he, he uh, Alzheimer's had set in and uh, he um, was still in post. He was Dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral, the Liberty of St. Patrick's, which was an area of about 15 acres, a tiny little area. His word was law in that area. So when Handel was looking for choristers to sing in Fishamble Street Music Hall, Swift put down his foot and said, no, the only place that they're going to sing is in a church. And no church was big enough, uh, particularly for Messiah, to make money. So it was eventually necessary for other clergymen in the city to uh, shift uh, Swift as gently as they could to one side and make sure uh, that uh, uh, the choristers were available in Fishamble Street. Interestingly, 
that nearly all leading Church of Ireland clergymen were passionate about contemporary music. Dr Patrick Delaney, who was Chancellor of uh, Christ Church and also of St Patrick's, Vicar of uh, uh, St Werber's, people like that, they, they were important in making sure that Messiah was put on, which is all the more important because there's some doubt as to whether Handel would have got permission in similar circumstances in London. Did the presence of those choirs in St. Patrick's and Christchurch and I suppose the, the particular musical styles and maybe limitations of scale in Dublin influence the first performance of, of Messiah, how it was done? Handel uh, was a promoter and he was always adapting his music to uh, the musicians and the resources available. He knew he had a good little orchestra in the uh, the, the Dublin Castle Orchestra led by, by a band, it was called actually, uh, from Dublin Castle. He also had the choirs of St Patrick's and Christ Church. Uh, he'd brought over a couple of, of soloists himself, but... I suppose the performance, if we went to it nowadays, it would be very sparse by comparison uh, with, with what was generally seen. There are so many wonderful characters in this book, uh, performers, actors, singers, writers, uh, and I'm sure there were some you were particularly drawn to uh, and many who really add to the story. I'm thinking of uh, Susanna Sibber and her husband, uh, Theophilus, and Letitia Pilkington and the Claytons, Thomas Sheridan. Um, how did you set about researching those, those extraordinary lives? And uh, I'm guessing you must be grateful for uh, diaries and letters from yes. the time. Uh, in a way, I was working backwards. I knew that Dr. the Reverend Dr. Patrick Delaney uh, stood up in his his box in Fishamble Street after Susanna Sibber had sung uh, He Was Despised. And he shouted out, Woman, for this be all thy sins forgiven. So that left me. Why did he do that? So I obviously had to read up about Susanna Sibber. And in fact, uh, Handel altered parts of Messiah to suit her voice. You have to go all the way back she was a 17-year-old put on the stage by her father, who was an upholsterer in London. Uh, he hoped he would make, uh, she would make some money for him. Uh, she certainly did. Was very successful, made lots of cash. And uh, she was persuaded by her father to marry the son of the poet laureate Theophilus Sibber, who was a perfectly appalling man who gave her a venereal disease, uh, used most of the money she made from her performances, and uh, in fact, he encouraged a gentleman to um, become her lover in return for money. And uh, eventually, Susanna fell in love with this man, William Sloper, and they were going to make off and live a happy life together. And um, Theophilus realised he was not going to have a source of income anymore. So he took a very public case in London for criminal conversation, as it was called then, and uh, in that very, very public case, it was revealed how uh, Susanna and William uh, rented a room and they met and an Irishman bored holes through the wainscot to see what they were up to and gave his evidence so graphically in court that the judge had to shout out, enough, uh, we are not trying uh, a case of rape. And uh, anyway, she, after this case, had to flee London. She was a good Catholic girl who uh, was regarded as demure and... Um, was the sister of uh, Thomas Arne. But then she missed in the countryside with William Sloper. She, for three years, nobody knew where she was. 
except for one Irishman called John Quinn. And uh, John Quinn was in Dublin. He was an Irishman, but he was mostly performed in London. He wrote to her and said, would you ever like to come over to Anger Street Theatre? They need a leading lady very quickly. She jumped at the chance and she arrived in Dublin and she hoped that her past would not be known in Dublin. She was wrong. Dublin Faulkner's journal made that clear. And so in her first performances at, in Anger Street Theatre, hardly anybody turned up. The gentry were afraid to turn up for this disgraced actress. But then the Duke of Devonshire decided, I'm going to change this. He had a command performance for her. He came with all his family. So all the fashionable people in Dublin said, oh, it's all right to go and see her. And so she never looked back. Handel, who was in Dublin, realised she's in the city. He'd employed her before. She couldn't read music. She um, had an untrained voice. Her uh, voice was so affecting, Handel wanted it for certain of his arias, certain of his pieces in Messiah. And uh, he he, uh, changed... he was despised from a, a soprano part, I think it was, to a contralto part just for her. And there's something very moving about those descriptions of her stepping into that role and, and singing those words and the response to it. Yes, uh, um, uh, she was capable of, of moving people to tears, as I said uh, uh, Dr. Patrick Delaney stood up in Fishamble Street Music Hall and at the first performance he had uh, Thomas Sheridan uh, beside him and uh, he shouted out, Woman, for this be all thy sins forgiven uh, because her rendering of that was so affecting. And she went back to London later and was accepted back. Susanna went back to London and uh, she was accepted and she had a very long and successful career. Uh, uh, often David Garrick, the greatest actor of the 18th century, uh, acted beside her. There are many marvellous illustrations in the book, music scores and paintings, drawings, engravings. Um, it must have been quite difficult to, to restrict yourself in, in terms of illustration. I mean, how did you choose what you did? Oh, I was, uh, that was a very tricky one. I could have put in 120 pictures. Some, some very nice volumes uh, have been produced in Dublin over recent years. I, I, I wanted to be careful not to reproduce the ones, you know, that, that, that had appeared in those, except for one plate in one book that had... Uh, uh, descriptions of what people were eating at the time or the, the upper classes anyway. So they're wonderful. I mean, again, the food is is remarkable. Uh, course after course after course. And uh, mind you, it's it's also very interesting to look at that in relation to the recent famine around the rest of the country. Yes, I, I mean, it, it illustrates the, the, the gross inequality of Irish society uh, that uh, uh, the great majority of the Irish were living on potatoes and buttermilk and in Ulster they'd be uh, living on uh, oatmeal, uh, stirabout and, and so on, whereas the gentry in Dublin were going to these lavish dinners, for example, in, in Dublin Castle, uh, where there, 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 there might be 14 dishes in the first course, you know, that kind of thing. And then on occasion, there was a custom that they would, uh, after everybody had eaten and drunk as much as they could, that the poor would be let in and uh, an official would shout largesse, largesse, and you'd have a, 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 a great crowd of impoverished women pouring into Dublin Castle to eat up all the leftovers and drink what was left. With the gentry sometimes... Uh, Laughing their legs off and scorning them. Quite a picture. Uh, Jonathan, you follow the story of Messiah right up to the present and it's, it's a fascinating story and journey, illustrating, I suppose, that in, a, in a way the vagaries of taste and the, the strong element of chance in how art comes to prominence 
and popularity and endurance. Uh, it, it's extraordinary that had Handel uh, put on Messiah in London, it might well have failed as Saul had failed and it would have been simply found in his papers perhaps two centuries later and its, it, its greatness finally discovered uh, the sort of thing that has happened to some of Bach's works. But it was Ireland, it was Dublin that gave Handel the confidence they really liked my Messiah. So when he brought it to London and put it on and the London audiences didn't like Messiah, he persisted. Uh, they didn't like Messiah because they thought it was irreligious. It's interesting that the, uh, the, the Irish Protestants were actually much more tolerant of, of, of having religious uh, subjects on the stage than the um, Londoners were. You know, Londoners uh, denounced it as a profanation of God's name and word. And it was only when, years afterwards, in 1750, that uh, Messiah was put on for a charitable organisation, the Foundling Hospital in London, uh, that the upper classes decided, yeah, Messiah, it's OK, we like it, I will come. And, of course, became ever more popular thereafter. Jonathan Braden, thank you so much. Princius Odin, one of Ireland's best-known and admired conductors, is long associated with Messiah. I asked him when he first heard Messiah performed live. The first time I heard it performed is when I was asked to conduct it down in South America. And uh, that was my baptism of fire with a German choir. And I fell for it since. But since I came back to the country in the, uh, the late 70s, I was just lucky. I was in, happened to be working with Our Lady's Gold Society. They were an invited guest with the symphony orchestra and I was the guest conductor. And that's the first time I met them. And then shortly after that, they appointed me as the music director. That was 35 years ago. And uh, of course, I've done at least six performances of Messiah each year since then. In not all these with them, four, four a year on average with their ladies' court society and then others in different places, different parts of the world. And it's, so. it's, it's a remarkable piece. What is it that makes it remain fresh and strong and vivid for you? Well, first of all, the way Handel, um, the way Handel handles it, he was an opera composer and he knew theatre. And whereas he's given the text by Jennings to the suggestions from the, the, the book of Common Prayer, he knew how to get behind words. And he's divided the thing, Jennings divided for him in three separate sections, the, the prophecy, the, the passion music, and then the life of the world to come. And so he has great opportunities for the chorus and for the soloist to get involved in the great joy of prophecy of what's about to happen, to get involved in the tragedies of what did happen, and then to get involved again in the joy of our future. Very much part of the Christian beliefs, and so in the Christian part of the Western world today, a lot of people relate to it. In fact, a lot of people in Dublin don't think Christmas has happened until they've attended Messiah. And it's interesting because, in fact, of course, the themes are much more connected to Easter. And, they are. Uh, and yeah. the run-up to Easter. Well, the birth. And the first part is the birth, the, the, the passion music is all Easter. It gives us two opportunities to, to hang a peg on if we're for, for programming. So, but mainly it's done at Christmas time now. When you come to a new choir and orchestra uh, for a performance of Messiah, how do you bring them into the work? You know, what, what do you want to draw from them? I mean, there's, there's such, I suppose there's such tragedy and such splendour mm. in the music but obviously it needs careful direction. Well, this depends on the choir you meet. Some people, some singers, think they've got to 
poise themselves properly, have the diaphragm in a certain area and sing. Well, that's fine if there's someone they're studying. But when they're getting behind a text like an opera, like this one, um, they really have to, in the first part, be joyous. And that joy has to come out in everything they sing. And then in the middle section, if they have to distort the voice, for me, if they have to distort the voice slightly to get the anger of the crowds, then do so. But don't sing nicely when anger is required. Yes, it, it depends on the choir, uh, the choir we have. Um, Handel had a small choir, but then there were very good reasons for that. He, had to, he was a contemporary composer. His style would have been new to many people. He wanted performances done quickly, so it, they were, tended to be professional people one way or the other, people who read music quickly, who were able to learn music quickly. And so you had a small amount, usually from churches, as was pointed out, um, from Patrick's Cathedral and, and Christ Church in Dublin. Um, but the reason there were small amounts were because they were professional people. And so he was able to get through lots of work. He was in his day, and that was fine. Today, um, Messiah is done as often as not by people who are not professional singers. They gather because they love singing and they love handle. And this is the great thing in music. You can either have very professional people who do it as a job, it's their profession, or you can get people who are so enthusiastic about it, they want to get it right. And they're two different kinds of people to deal with. And so the choirs today that I would deal with mainly, the big choir like Our Lady Scored Society, or like when I go to Halle, where Handel was born, each year I do a performance there of an international choir with the Opera House Orchestra there and some solos, um, 450 singers from different parts of the world. They travelled there to pay homage to Handel and where he was born and again to sing the piece there. So it's a question of getting them together on the same track of joy, of the passion, and that's what we do. I use the word always recreate music, not perform it. So it's black and white on a page and you can read the text as much as you like, but you must recreate the emotion in it each time. And the colour must come and off the, the colour must be there. Everything must be there. Vivid. Is there a difference between uh, your experience of directing, in, for instance, in Halle uh, and here in Ireland? I mean, is, is uh, Germany has such a, a deep-rooted uh, tradition of classical music. I mean, is, do you find, do you get, get a different response uh, from your orchestras and singers? Initially, but then the different, both Handel and Bach born the same year over there. And Bach stayed there and stayed with the German language, mainly. Handel decided he was going to move and moved to Italy, where he became familiar with Italian. Fortunately for us, at least for me, he moved to England. And so English became the language where he wrote his, his oratories with Jennings, providing the text for most of them. If not, uh, we'd probably be in the same position as the Germans are with Handel. They use translations over there of Messiah sometimes, or have done up to recently. It's only now since English, English has become the international language taken over from French and for largely through pop music and through television, uh, English is now understood by all, that they're really coming in onto Handel and seeing Handel afresh in English in places like Germany and throughout Europe. So that's terrific. But from our lucky point of view, he did come to our part of the world and actually wrote music with the English language in mind. And for the German, he did very well. He made very few occasions when you'd say to him, I must talk to him and I meet him, why did he put the vowel there? Which you do with many composers. But he got it. He, I thought he had a very good grasp of English. Do you see um, a clear link between Handel's operatic work and, and Messiah, for instance? I think, actually, Messiah is a very good opera and it comes in three acts. He goes at the... He had, a, he had disagreements with Jennings. Uh, I know he wrote most of the stuff quietly and just fed Jennings as much as he had to. 
But Jennings was, was of a different view about the text and thought Handel was actually being a bit disrespectful at times. But the opera composer and the man behind the emotions of the words was Handel. So his answer back was, don't show him any more of it. I'll just finish it and get it performed and then we'll deal with it. And which I thought was great. Do you understand why Messiah is so enduringly popular all around the world? Yes, well, well, I think it is something to do with life and death, for a start, our own life and death. And that's something that's very common to all of us. Um, and the second thing is, it has some humdingers of choruses in it, let's face it. The structure thing, I don't know of many composers who'd stick something like the Alleluia chorus two-thirds of the way through and still have to top it later on. And it only takes a guy like Handel to come up with an Amen, where there's the Lamb and Amen, that could actually be as strong and bring the thing. In any theatrical work, the main problem the composer the, or the writer has is to have these the, the peaks and the troughs, all these ups and downs. Handel manages this quite well, not only in the different characters of the, each act, the, the joyous part in the first bit, he keeps it bouncing along nicely, and then he gets into the second bit and he gives the chorus, if they were in costume, they'd be changing like mad. They can get into the beginning of the passion music with total compassion for the situation Christ is in. And surely he has borne our grief. And later on, they're asked to become the rabble, the crowd, who turn around and say, OK, now that he's coming across, if he believes in Christ, let him get him down, get out of that fix. And that kind of theatre is throughout. And it's a great, vivid, lively theatrical piece. In performance, then, of course, the, the choir and the orchestra and the solo artists each have different functions. And as was each bring something distinctive to the experience of Messiah. What can we experience, for instance, as we listen to, for example, the chorus singing, He Trusted in God, and then the recitative sung by the tenor, Thy rebuke hath broken mm. his heart. That is the typical thing I'm talking about now, where Handel gets an angry chorus, an angry crowd, saying that uh, he trusted in God that he would deliver him. OK, well, show him. You know, it's, real, it's a real swipe at, uh, at the whole system. And then the tenor coming in with uh, their rebuke, a broken his heart. And you get the, you're lifted right up and then you're smashed right down again. That tenor has some of the most glorious music that Handel wrote. And many a soprano has said, well, gosh, you know, why the tenor get that? They'd love to sing it. Handel was a person who did adapt and would allow different artists to sing, depending on who he met, wherever he went. But traditionally, the tenor sings that. And it's a wonderful piece. Princess then, thank you so much. Pleasure. And Messiah, conducted by Princess Odin, with Nora King, soprano, Ulrich Schneider, alto, Robert Trichler, tenor and John Malloy, bass, with the RTE Concert Orchestra, takes place from the 9th to the 11th of December at 8 o'clock in the National Concert Hall in Dublin. Hallelujah, the story of a musical genius and the city that brought his masterpiece to life by Jonathan Barden is published by Gill and Macmillan. On next week's Arts Tonight, as UCD marks 50 years since its Department of the History of European Painting was set up under its founder, Dr. Francoise Henry, Arts Tonight meets one of its graduates, Dr. Brian Kennedy, now director of the Toledo Museum of Art in Ohio, and others associated with what is now UCD's School of Art History and Cultural Policy. Join us then. Good night.
Arts Tonight is presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleona Neanderwin.